Welcome to Covenant Conversations. I am Shweta Rao, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Martin Forbes, a partner of the Debt Finance Group in White and Case in London. We are going to talk about the boom in SPACs and their impact on financing transactions. Hi, Martin. It's great to have you join us on our Covenant Conversations podcast today. Okay, thanks for having me. So you've written this really excellent article about SPACs or blank check companies, which is one of the hottest investment phenomena of last year and continuing this year. And these special acquisition companies are raising a record amount of money. Data from Refinitiv shows that in the first quarter of 2021, blank check companies have already beaten their 2020 fundraising record, raking in 79.4 billion globally year to date, that is in the first quarter, eclipsing the 79.3 billion raised in all of 2020. And you you previously have written about how SPAC issuance will boost M&A activity, support leverage finance issuance and give sponsors the opportunity to exit their existing investments. So let's talk about all these really interesting issues in this podcast. And let's start with the basics. What is a SPAC and what is powering the extraordinary boom in SPACs today? A SPAC is just at heart a shell company, which will be organized by someone who's sponsoring it, probably with investing experience or experience in operating companies or or ideally both to be honest and they raise capital into that empty shell by conducting an IPO so it becomes a listed company on a stock exchange but the reason people call them blank check companies is the purpose of raising that cash is to make an acquisition within a specified time frame normally it's two years but in theory it could be more or it could be less and that acquisition is obviously just to acquire what's normally an existing private company. And so one of the reasons it's so exciting for private equity funds in terms of being able to exit transactions is, in a sense, all these SPACs that have been raised, and there are hundreds of them, you know, all exist. Most have not yet you know, consummated their, their SPAC acquisition and therefore aren't yet you know, entities which own operating companies. And they all plan to do that. So there are, in effect, if you're a private equity sponsor who's looking to exit an investment, potentially, you know, hundreds of um, new purchasers that you could be be selling to, to the extent that certainly in the United States, you're now seeing a phenomenon of SPAC auctions, as you put it, where in, in certain auctions or certain exit transactions, you know, all of or most of the bidders to buy the asset are, are actually SPACs. I was just going to ask you how it's attractive to the target companies themselves. Yes, sure. And well, to an extent, it's it's attractive to the vendor to an extent rather than or as well as the as the target company. You know, to an extent, some of the attractiveness sort of, of a SPAC is that it's an alternative to a traditional IPO and it makes up for some of what you could see as the inadequacies or at least the limitations of traditional IPO process. So the big one you hear capital markets lawyers talk about in in the US is that you fix the transaction value at the beginning of the process rather than at the end. So obviously in an IPO, you sell the shares and you have a price discovery process through the listing and you find out how much money you get when you've completed the listing. Whereas in a, a private acquisition, obviously you sell the shares under an acquisition agreement for an agreed price. And the SPAC model 
is more like a private acquisition. So you fix the price at the beginning, so you have that, that certainty. In addition, there are certain structural things with an IPO that Dunispac might allow you to, to deal with. So for example, you can market the transaction maybe based on financial projections in a way that you can't do in an IPO process just because of securities law. Um, you may be able to take more cash out of the transaction or exit to a more significant extent because you may not have to keep as large a stake locked up post-IPO. Um, you can do things that are more traditionally associated with private M&A. So, for example, you can have an earn-out transaction because obviously you've got the SPAC company as a purchaser, like you have in a private deal, whereas obviously that's not really something you can achieve in a traditional IPO. So there's a number of attractions of, of doing this SPAC transaction rather than a traditional IPO exit. And, you know, to an extent, the, the enthusiasm for them is, is frankly just that they exist and they're a great new source of potential places that you can sell your business if you're looking to exit. But, you know, more specifically, they do deal with several, as I say, flaws or limitations, depending on your point of view, in the traditional IPO model. So it sounds like a very attractive option at the moment, you know, gives certainty, is quicker. The overwhelming majority of SPACs this year have been listed um, in U.S. exchanges. So what is the reason for the SPAC boom not yet having traveled in its same volume and quantum to Europe? And what needs to change for this product to catch up on this side of the pond? Well, it's a really good question, and there isn't one answer to it. Um, and in fact, most of the SPACs that have been done in, in, in Europe or people have looked at in, in London or normally in the Netherlands actually have a fairly significant US nexus. So they're either used to acquire US assets or in fact, they often change their, their listing afterwards to be a, a New York listing. It's hard to say a lot of it, frankly, is just the European markets tend to trail innovations in the US markets by a, a year or two. Now, SPACs actually aren't that recent a product, but certainly the, the current boom is, is only really a couple of a couple of years old, and there might just be something in that. You know, secondly, they are fundamentally a capital markets product. They, you know, they're, they're sold to the public like any other sort of public offering. And just the depth of the market and the and having investors in the market that are used to and understand that sort of product is, is obviously really important. And traditionally, that's not something that's that's necessarily been there in, in Europe so far. I think that increasingly as people get more familiar with it, certainly there's a lot of buzz on this side of the Atlantic at the moment in relation to SPACs. Inevitably, people will look at doing it because the fundamental reasons why they're desirable in the US are no different, frankly, um, in Europe. I think increasingly people will, will look at doing it, but there's a, there's a number of different reasons, partly to do with just where the innovation was and the depth of the market there. And partly to do with obviously people understanding and being familiar with exactly what the regulatory scheme is and how a SPAC works in, in the US, whereas you know the first time you do one in, in London or in Amsterdam, it will inevitably have to be slightly different. Martin, your uh, your expertise lies in debt financing transactions. How will SPACs be incorporated in such financing transactions? Well, there are several you know specific structural features of SPACs that you need to address when you do the debt financing for them. And there has been debt financing done for a lot of SPAC transactions, again, mainly in the US, but I think we can say with a fair degree of certainty how that will translate into the, the European market 
you know, if and when um, you know, more deals become relevant here. So one of the features, certainly in US SPACs, and actually this wouldn't necessarily have to be the case in, in, in London or in other places in Europe, but certainly in the US, there's a you know, majority shareholder approval required to approve the acquisition once it's been identified and done. And there's the opportunity for investors to effectively take the money back out at that point. Now, effectively, that just becomes a, an additional condition to the acquisition. You know, in the US, that means that SPAC deals typically take longer to conclude than a straight private acquisition financing transaction. You know, in Europe, to be honest, a lot of this could run concurrently with competition or any other similar conditions you have. And so it won't necessarily make it a longer process, but it's you know it's one more piece of conditionality you'll have in your deal. And obviously, for a syndicated transaction, it's one more thing you need to bear in mind that that might mean your your deal doesn't end up happening. You know, normally the shareholders do approve these transactions. Normally they stay invested because frankly, they invested in the SPAC in the first place in order to carry out an M&E transaction. So it's surprising if, if a large number of people choose to withdraw. But it, you know it's, it's a bit of uncertainty. Or additional condition that you need to that you need to deal with. Normally, for that reason, you will have a, a pipe transaction. So, in other words, you will have equity commitments alongside your um, your IPO when you do the SPAC. Normally, from people who invest in the in the SPAC itself, but it could be from from anyone, frankly. So, a sort of equity co-investment. Now, that can be used you know, to make up for investors who who back off and don't do the deal when they get the chance to, to take the vote in that, but it can be used to upsize the size of the SPAC transaction that, that gets done. But you know the fundamentals of the SPAC don't really change. You've still got these conditionality aspects baked into it. And really when you do the financing, you just need to make sure the conditionality of your financing is similar to the conditionality for the transaction actually closing. In the US, you also have a need to file a a proxy statement, which to an extent is relatively similar to do it, and you listing, frankly, because you're making such a large acquisition from a company that previously had no assets. Now, again, if based if you're working for the arrangers of a financing for a SPAC deal, you just need to think a little bit, as you would in any transaction for a, a listed company, about what information is going to be in that statement about your financing, you know, both from a you know, reputational or internal point of view as to how much involvement you want in that, and also in terms of what the information in there might do in terms of, of when it becomes public, how it affects your syndication, and, and so on. And so a lot of the same considerations that you would have, frankly, in relation to any IPO financing or any public transaction, it's just you kind of have it in two different steps. You've got an entity which is already IPO'd, but which then has this proxy statement that follows along, along later. Now, both of those features could be different depending on what exchange you are trying to list in, in in Europe and, frankly, how you choose to structure your, your deal. I mean, there's a real choice for SPAC issuers if they come across to London, for example, because you wouldn't need to have the same degree of conditionality around shareholder approval for the acquisition as you have in the, in the US because the securities laws are different. So it's obviously very attractive to maybe you know, just, just not have that conditionality, make the transaction more certain, make yourself look better, frankly, to the vendors who, who are selling to you because you don't have that uncertainty. 
you know, but on the other hand, if you're trying to establish a SPAC market in, in Europe, if you've got maybe some of the same investors who are used to doing these transactions in the US and who've got a degree of familiarity, you know, with those features and maybe take some comfort out of them, you may wish to, to import some of those features in any case, frankly, in order to make sure your, your SPAC IPO gets off successfully in the first place. And so really the extent to which you include those features and exactly how they work is all stuff that's going to have to be reflected in the conditionality ultimately of your debt financing. So coming to specs and documents, what impact will the acquisition by the SPAC of a target company have on that target company's existing leveraged finance documents? So it will depend. In common, you know, to an extent with any acquisition financing or any financing for an IPO, it, it will depend exactly what you what you do because there's there's several different options. You might be doing a brand new financing for the IPO. You might be seeking to retain existing financing, maybe with change of control waivers or, or repaying some of it, or whatever whatever other features you have to to incorporate in order to keep the debt after an IPO, depending on your existing document. Now, whichever one of those you you go with, you know there's certain you know technical things you just need to make sure work effectively around matching conditionality, making sure you're comfortable with the the sort of public nature of it and, and whatever else is going on in relation to the SPAC itself, and that's really the stuff we just talked about. And to be honest with you, I'm sure I've oversimplified, but that's kind of the extent of it. There's certain technical features of a SPAC that that you need to make sure you address. Now, beyond that, it's going to look quite a lot like a financing for a, a newly IPO'd company, because to a significant extent, that's what it is. You, you can get to that point through a different route. And so functionally, it's quite likely the financing is going to have substantial similarities to that. And most of how it works in terms of the leverage and the pricing and indeed the covenants is going to be as much driven by just the reality of what it is, which is a crossover investment grade financing for a, for a listed company. And the SPAC specific features, to an extent, as I say, other than the, the technical bits, are going to be a result just of the differences in the commercial transaction from it, it being a SPAC. Now, one example would be that SPACs tend to pay relatively premium prices for the assets they acquire, which is one more reason, frankly, that they're attractive to, to vendors. You know, that's a trade-off the investors in the SPACs think is worthwhile, obviously, or they wouldn't invest. And they think it's, it's worthwhile because they kind of invest in this sort of transaction with the liquidity of the public market. So it's very easy to trade in and, and trade out, which certainly isn't the case if you're investing in a, in a private equity fund. But then that pricing, for example, might determine to an extent how much leverage that a, a SPAC company is willing to have on the transaction. It might be a bit more conservative, for example, than a, a straight new IPO of a, a previously private equity-owned company. It might be they look to, to repay the debt down a little bit more if you're keeping the existing financing than a, a normal private equity sponsor, sponsor would. It might mean if they have financial covenants or anything like that in the document. I mean, normally those things would come out if they exist at an IPO anyway, but, but those are the sort of triggers that, again, you might find that a SPAC-owned entity is just a little bit more conservative on because you know, you've already paid a relative premium on the price in lots of cases. 
So you probably want to go with a relatively conservative acquisition financing structure. But you know, these to an extent are, are deal by deal considerations. And they're things that, that just result from the economic realities of the SPAC transaction rather than any, you know, any legal or technically necessary features. If the target company were to keep its uh, existing financing, you know, in some leveraged loans, you have the concept of a qualifying listing. And if there were a qualifying listing, then a lot of the terms get loosened, baskets get increased, information requirements change, the dividend uh, restrictions fall away. So perhaps that could be something that becomes those sort of qualifying listing terms become relevant again in leveraged loans looking forward. In, in case, you know, people are expecting that instead of IPOing, a company might go through a listing through the SPAC route. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that will become relevant. I mean, sponsors already are very focused on at least making sure they have the flexibility to do that if they do an IPO. And, you know, one of the reasons really is that it's, it's difficult enough to time the markets and get your IPO transaction done without also having to time the markets in order to get a debt financing transaction done, which, which might have some different tensions. And, you know, at best, it's distracting to the people trying to carry out the, the deal. So, you know, there's often value in keeping the existing financing, even if it's just in the, in the short term. And I think that the increased likelihood of exiting into an IPO or a SPAC will, will drive people to be more focused on those terms, certainly. And I think, frankly, the, the fact that the existence of SPACs changes the, the possibilities, for example, in terms of, of how much a sponsor can realistically you know, divest at once into what will be a, a SPAC transaction rather than an IPO, you know, increases the need again for the flexibility because there's just more different options that you want to cover off. And we've already seen, actually, sponsors look to include in the trade of control provisions the language that effectively would ensure that a SPAC transaction won't result in a change of control. So, for example, most leverage loans, or certainly most leverage loans of a scale that are likely to end up in an IPO, already have a sort of negative change of control feature where following an IPO, the sponsor doesn't have to, have to hold a controlling stake anymore. And there's no change of control as long as someone else doesn't acquire a controlling stake. Now, we've already seen, for example, sponsors looked to include language to the effect that for the purpose of one of those tests, a SPAC isn't a single person who, if they control the company or acquire a controlling stake, would cause a change of control. And instead, you look through the SPAC to the public shareholders. So we're already seeing sponsors looking to make sure that that sort of flexibility works. And I think it will definitely cause you know, increased focus on what this financing would look like after an IPO or after a SPAC. Because realistically, I think the proportion of exits that wind up in a, in a public company is going to be higher just because the existence of so many SPACs and people looking to do more is going to give sponsors more options to do that. So this is an exciting time for you because there's a, um, you know, some creative thinking around SPACs required and how they will implement the documents that you're drafting today uh, looking into the future. For, for sure, yes, for sure. And I think that... You know, I mean, the funny thing is when we talk about keeping the existing leverage finance document post-SPAC transaction, you know, of course, in the main, I'm not describing anything that's specific to the, the SPAC deal because by definition, these, these are loans that, that, already, that already exist. Um, 
And so one of the things to think about is, is, is what the changes will be as you go into the SPAC. Obviously, sponsors would much rather do that without any sort of lender consent to, to make that happen. Um, there's an interplay between how much leverage the market will will accept, frankly, on a listed company, and also in the context of SPAC, maybe a tendency to be conservative in this. Against how much debt is already in the companies, you know, what the terms are in the pricing, you know, how low the margin ratchet can, can go up, what leverage level and and, and whether that's as attractive as, as, as refinancing it, but bearing in mind you get the additional certainty. So you've got a number of different things that, that interplay as that goes on. And, you know, the features you'd be looking at in an existing document, whether you're looking at whether a current one, you know, is attractive enough to survive a SPAC or what features you want to bake in going forward and all the things you'd expect for an IPO company. So sufficient dividend flexibility, potentially to, to to meet whatever dividend plans you have as a public company, whether that's after an IPO or a SPAC. Obviously, the information requirements in the document will need to be consistent with the obligations on a listed company in whichever jurisdiction you're in, so you probably can't have anything forward-looking, for example. Um, and you know, all, all of the features that might turn off at the back of the document at a you know, particular leverage level or following an IPO are the sort of things that people will be looking harder at just because it becomes more concrete or more likely that this is something that will become relevant in the future. And the other option mentioned was that instead of retaining your existing financing, you took brand new financing uh, when you were acquired by a SPAC. What are the considerations that would go into such a new financing? Sort of why would someone want to go that route and what would those document features be like? Yeah, for, for sure. And I think it's worth saying as well that you know, we tend to focus on, you know, it's, and it's not just leverage finance lawyers, I'm sure it's, it's, it's bankers and, and everyone else involved with the with the debt side of this, but you know, we tend to focus on, on whether you refinance it at closing or, or not. But it is worth saying that, you know, all of these transactions will eventually end up in a, a, a refinance form of document. It would be, I think, very unusual, like I've never seen it, that someone would with IPO and then still have the form of leverage finance document that they used to have, you know, five years later or, or seven years later. And I think no one would ever would ever plan to do that. It tends to be more of a, I mean, stop gaps maybe not quite fair, but it tends to be a, a medium term solution at, at best. And the reason for that is that there are loads of attractions of getting on to a, an investment grade style facility, which is designed for, for a listed company. They tend to be a little bit less restrictive than, than leverage finance documents. Um, and obviously that's attractive. They tend to be a little bit simpler. You tend not to require the sort of intercredits and mechanics and security and just all of the, the background stuff, which is both complex to understand and, and costly to establish and maintain that a leverage structure has. Um, and in addition to that, you often find that, that listed companies over time just want to change the nature of who the lenders are. So you know, a bank club deal becomes a more natural thing for an established listed company to, to have maybe than a sort of leverage finance, you know, syndicate, which just needs dealt with in a sort of different way. It's not it's not really a relationship deal in the same in the same fashion. So whether it's sooner or later, people will tend to get to the point that they go to a traditional, you know, pre or post IPO facility. And the features of that in relation to a SPAC deal are going to be just really similar to the features of one of those deals that you would do if you were exiting straight into, a, straight into an IPO. 
So you're looking at leverage of probably opening after the IPO of three, maybe three and a half times, so certainly not the, the six or seven. You, you often see in a leverage finance transaction, probably a flat structure. Um, so in other words, you're not going to have a first and second lien or, or anything like that, or you're unlikely to at least. Um, probably guaranteed, but not secured in most cases, certainly through time. And ideally without the, the full kind of target group guarantee structure you see in a leverage deal, which can be expensive to create and maintain across a number of jurisdictions. And generally in terms of, of the covenants, you know, more freedom to, to make acquisitions, disposals, and in particular dividends without there being really any meaningful controls in an investment-based finance document on that. Sometimes the, the flip side is you do have a financial covenant, which other than on the revolving credit facility, most leverage finance deals don't anymore. And so in other words, the, the features of a deal you will end up in after a SPAC are ultimately probably the same as the features that you will end in after an IPO. You know, it might be more likely that you keep your leverage finance documents in the short term through the SPAC transaction, especially if it's meant to be a sort of part exit at that stage and with, with a second stage to come later. Um, or it might be just that it's a greater degree of control that you might see sponsors exert on a SPAC exit as distinct from an IPO means that's more likely as well in the in the short term. But I think ultimately, these transactions are all going to end up with financings that look like finances that listed companies have, because ultimately all of these exits are intended to end up with normal listed companies. Thanks, Martin. That's a really good overview of what documents would look like in the short term and in the long term once a target company is acquired by a SPAC enlisted. Thank you so much, Martin, for talking us through what the SPAC market looks like in the US and what to expect in Europe and how it impacts leverage finance documentation. It was great chatting with you. Thanks, Martin. Okay, thanks, Rita. Appreciate it.